0: I feel like I've been having a conversation with you in my head for the last, like, I don't know, two years or something like that.
1: Yeah, well, I'm honestly glad that I was delayed a bit in finding your message because I've been doing, you know, I made that first video, right? And I, when I made that first video, I was so fresh and so green within internet politics. I mean, I went through all the, the alt-right pipeline stuff, so to speak, but I was still so green and like what was out there in the past couple months since you reached out, I have just like, it's like every two years I have a political transformation and then you, like you've just caught me right after another one. And so like a lot of the ideas that I see you share in your Instagram, you know uh, you share a lot of capitalist realism memes. um, You share a lot of what I would say ideas that come out of the post structuralist I just like started to accelerate into that stuff uh, (laughs) post January 6th. And um, I don't know. I would say I'm like, kind of well caught up to where you're at now and it's a it's a little it's like a strange place to be with an internet politics
0: it's a it's a new place uh the internet has changed a lot in the last few years too yeah uh and i'm starting to realize that let's um let's trace our steps back to make sure that everybody knows who you are who they're listening to now i know your stuff very well I've easily done 80% of it. I've done the vast majority of everything you've published. Uh, unfortunately, you became the case study or the lab rat for a lot of these conversations. So I'm interested to, to talk about the last few years and, and see where you are now. I understand you're in a, a different phase, a different part of your uh, political journey, so to speak. Would you briefly just tell people what the video was and tell people um, some of the media coverage after that?
1: Leading up to the video, what created the context for the video itself is I'm growing up in West Virginia, uh, going through life pretty listless. You know, it's like one of those situations where a person that gets told, oh, you have so much potential, you're, you're going places, and then you graduate high school, you go to college, and then you just end up dropping out, you know, because I was too depressed. I had realizing now I had untreated ADHD. And I just couldn't hack it. And so I drop out, I end up back at home, you know, back, you know, I grew up in a very small town in West Virginia, right? And again, it's that cliche of like, you know, uh, like the main character in a Shin song, you know, you just went the hell out of your town, (laughs) and you can't stand it. And you know that there's more out there. But at the same time, you're completely naive, and you don't know how to access it. After dropping out of school, I just felt like a complete failure. And I'm back living with my great grandfather back in this town that I hate. And I can't even really go hang out with people because all the people I grew up with are all on drugs and I don't want anything to do with that life anymore. And so really I just sat in my room, just sat in my room. And I'm telling you, I sat in that room. It felt like years. It was probably only like six months, maybe a year. I laid in bed so much. My legs atrophied. Like I just, you know, I could feel it when I stood up and the only outlet that I had was the internet. And, you know, back then I was watching all sorts of shit. I was watching Athene, Athene Wins, the the gamer, you know, that was like, I he remember. was the first one that introduced me to a concept that would later like propel me and drive me and put me on a little mission. And it was, I watched his YouTube video, God is in the neurons. And he it started a my cult head,
0: shortly after that.
1: He did start a cult shortly after that. Ironically. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. He made this video, God is in the neurons. And there was a bunch of pseudoscientific stuff in there. But the basis of the first half was he basically lays out some like foundational psychology and neuroscience concepts. And the one that really stuck with me the most was neuroplasticity. This idea that your brain is plastic and that you can learn and and grow and and develop new skills. I was like, oh my God, like I'm not stuck the way I am. And specifically you know, how I felt about my mental health and, you know, my confidence. I was like, I can grow all these things. So I went out, I set out on this journey of like self-improvement, right. That led me, you know, I would watch all sorts of things, a lot of very cringe stuff, never gotten any manosphere or incel circles, but I did end up running into a YouTuber by the name of Stefan Molyneux. And when I found Stefan, you know, uh, he was running this YouTube channel. He said it was the number one philosophy show in the world. And he would do these like he would do these long form like call ins where people would call in and he basically do like pseudo therapy sessions with them. And then he'd do all this content where he was going into psychology and neuroscience. And basically w- what I saw picking up that a theme video left off. I learned a lot about psychology listening to, th- to those videos. But at the same time that I was watching and listening to that content, he was slipping in all sorts of social and political ideas, you know, anti-feminism stuff, uh, anti-Muslim ideas, a lot of, a lot of like really fierce rhetoric around immigration. And, you know, one of the biggest for me was the, the IQ stuff, which, you know, invariably leads into the race realism, this idea that there's a hierarchy of races and that we need to control immigration based on both IQ and race. It's not an explicitly white nationalist position. It's actually more of a civic nationalist position. He used but to be I'm, an
0: anarcho-capitalist. He was if an you anar- go back, mm-hmm. you know, uh, go back to the Stefan stuff of like, before the arc of like 2016, when things really, really heat up, um, he was kind of like a Bitcoin guy.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And- that's the one piece of advice I actually wish I would have listened to. That's the- <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Because <laughs> yeah, I knew yeah. about Bitcoin. I knew about it before then because I would troll dark web websites, yeah. you know, um, for uh, uh, redacted reasons. And um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, whenever I found Steph, I, it's the one thing I would have listened to. Cause I was listening to him like 2014. That was the one
0: good piece of advice he had. That's you know, true. Yeah.
1: like, well, I didn't listen to that piece of advice. I took all the other advice and I, I kind of became a libertarian. You know, I became that sort of an and cap libertarian. And then and then the logic, what I call the the great logic train begins. Steph would bring on other guests. Right. So he might bring on guests that spoke a lot more about social conservatism. And then Steph would talk about social conservatism. And the argument was basically, well, you want this free libertarian society, which I was already predisposed to. You know, the, the, the freedom stuff appealed to me. Right. And so I get drawn into that. But then it becomes, well, if you want to have your freedom, you have to have a country. And if you want to have a country, then you need to control for immigration because these low IQ people that are going to vote in socialism are going to come into your country and destroy it. Right. Like very boomer memes. So 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 slowly. And then, you know, there's also the idea that you have to have traditional family values to have a, a stable culture. So you, you move from being a libertarian to being a social conservative. And now you're listening to people like Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder, maybe even Jordan Peterson. I got really into Jordan Peterson. But then the rhetoric starts to ramp up. Donald, Especially Donald Trump's getting in office and his rhetoric. You know, Donald Trump appealed to me for the same reason it appeals to a lot of people. Anti-establishment figure, uh, speaks his mind, just says whatever he wants and attacks his enemies, right? And that's appealing at the time, especially at the height of like the meme War. right? So get drawn into all that and so it goes from being just a normal social conservative to your beliefs on immigration things don't change they just intensify the urgency intensifies and so now I'm listening to people like Lauren Southern I'm listening to Gavin McGinnis you know I'm listening to these types of figures and they're just really drilling at home that like no we need to do something and it just keeps ramping up like that and then eventually you know towards the end of this Propaganda process, which I'd say lasted about four and a half, five years. Um, I was starting to listen to people like Jared Taylor, Richard Spencer. Um, I guess at one point I would have even been listening to David Duke because he would have been appearing on some of these podcasts. But at the same time that I was listening to that content, I had already found uh the channel Destiny, uh Stephen Bennell, who is a left-wing Twitch streamer. And he would upload his clips on YouTube, and I was already listening to Contrapoints, and so there, Destiny there was like,
0: not necessarily a left wing uh, uh, anything well, anymore. <laughs> depends on how we want
1: to. It depends on how we want to, uh, uh, you know, categorize a liberal, that. For yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yes, he's a liberal. Yes. He's a liberal. Uh, so, so I would have been listening to Contrapoints and Destiny around that time, and kind of juggling these two uh, uh, opposing views. Destiny listening to his content really gave me a crash course in media literacy, I would say. Also, he like would directly debate with somebody like Lauren Southern. I I have a lot of thoughts about debate culture, but, you know, those debates, they were like a crack in the dam. Um, Listening to ContraPoints, I would start to sort of see through some of the propaganda as well, some of the tactics that sort of like subtly groom someone into white nationalism, the far right. And then I would say a big part of what really accelerated you know, me changing my views is I started going to Destiny's Discord server and having conversations when, with people in there. And I met people from all the different backgrounds that I was supposed to be afraid of. Muslims, Muslims from Saudi Arabia, trans people, anarchists, leftists, communists, liberals, progressives. And very slowly, I think I just started to realize that um, things weren't so... Black and white is what I'd been told on the far right. And I kind of walked backwards. So I went from being that like, you know, kind of pseudo fascist, pseudo white nationalist to going back to being a civic nationalist, to going back to being kind of conservative, to going back to being kind of libertarian and then, you know, centrist for a while. And then, you know, moving from there.
0: The arc that you're describing now, I have seen, no exaggeration, hundreds of of people go through this process. And I watched it happen between 2015 and 2017, 18. Um, it's the intro to the PDF that circulated a lot, Politogram in the Post Left, describing moving from anarcho-capitalism to ethno-nationalism, which sounds totally incoherent, uh, uh, just, I mean, on the face of it, uh, open borders versus uh, uh, closed borders. So the the pathway between those things is uh, is complex. And I've watched people post in a similar timeline of what you're describing. I think uh, more accelerated, probably like a a two-year period for most of these kids. They're a little bit younger than you on Instagram. I think this just varies with the platforms. Mm -hmm. But they move through those content producers. You can literally plot algorithmic recommendation pipelines. You can also plot just a, a clarity of thought where each of these communities or commentators is picking up on the inconsistencies of the person uh, before them. And these are, all, these are often in response videos. Um, there is a, there, there's a clarity that you reach towards the end. This is the, the funnel analogy that both of us are, are infinitely familiar with by now. And it refines into something quite extreme at the end of it. You were profiled in a Times article by Kevin Roos called The Making of a YouTube Radical. You are also prominently featured in the podcast series Rabbit Hole, especially in the first few episodes. I, as well as the rest of the world, has seen your entire YouTube history. I imagine that is, um, I, I, I really can't actually imagine what that must be like. But uh, what I think is very interesting and is rarely talked about is that in your transition period between belief systems, you're actually consuming both types of content things that are mutually exclusive worldviews, you're consuming both of them at the same time. Um, And people are, are, I think they assume that when someone switches belief systems or moves from one idea to another, that they just uh, uproot everything and um, all of a sudden you're dropped into this new world. And it's actually like a process of slowly pruning through your newsfeed and consuming uh, mutually exclusive ideas, steering into one of them Uh, And the drift is incremental. It happens happens over time. The question that has been on my mind that was not present in the mainstream media coverage is that de-radicalizing people from the right may not be very useful if it sets us back on the path towards climate catastrophe and increasingly brutal iterations of techno-capitalism. So moving people from the far right back into liberals recreates the same problems. In being the lab rat for a lot of these things, you were also put in a position where people would try and squeeze solutions from you, not just solutions for how to manage their platforms, how to manage their content and all the dissident voices, but also how do we restore the center consensus? Like how do we hold society together? Yeah, I guess to pick up on what you had said before about managing online communities, there's not a clear path out of it.
1: First, I would agree that basically, it's weird. I don't know why, but everybody, almost all political factions seem to see me as some token that if they can grab me and move me to their position, it's validated them. They've sure. somehow become validated. I don't know why that is. I've had uh, people on the far right try to re-radicalize me. I've had people in the far left try to radicalize me. I've had people in the center try to radicalize me um or de-radicalize me um (laughs) which i hate that term. first of all i just want to say i hate that term because it's so loaded it's almost insinuating that there's a stable position there's just a stable true objective position somewhere out there in the ether and that if we just grab onto it hold on to it that everything's going to be okay and everything's gonna be safe we never have to worry about politics ever again i mean to me that's what de-radicalization really is trying to say it's trying to say Let's depoliticize the de- issues. It's
0: depoliticization. Yes. The, the radical ideas now were common sense ideas in the 1970s. Yes. One of the things I try and do is draw a rhetorical distinction between uh, radical politics and extremist politics. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about you're talking about fucking ISIS or you're talking about Adam Waffen, those are extremist politics. Yeah, get rid of that shit. Deplatform them, whatever. Sure. But radical politics extends from everything from Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders. And the, these things are fundamentally not in the same category. So de-radicalizing people creates the opportunity for establishment neoliberal interests to lump together extremist and regular common sense yes. uh, policies and do away with the whole thing. And that's really and, dangerous to, and to I have can that tell slippage.
1: you. I agree. And I can tell you because so I got absorbed into an apparatus after, you know, making that video and showing up at that article. And, you know, I'm obviously very well-spoken and I can do analysis on the, on, on what's going on. And so I got like absorbed into this, this apparatus called countering violent extremism. It's called CVE and started off in the, uh, during the war on terror to deal with Islamic terrorism. So it's really all these like professionals, either ranging from state department to academia to nonprofit, but the whole common train of thought across the whole thing is again that idea of de-radicalization, that idea of depoliticizing the issues. And there are many people, I would say 90% of people, 95% of people in that in that realm, they fall victim to this creating a false connection between extremism and radicals, you know, radical ideas. or, Or rather lumping everything all in together and so that anything that isn't in this like center core. It's radical, and therefore it's dangerous. In that realm, there's mostly a focus on the far right. But from what we've seen in the Biden administration, that focus is also on the left as well. And and it's going to end up creating more radicals, is what they don't realize. They're, they're, going, they're going to end up creating more extremists because the, the issues that we have fundamentally are political. They fundamentally are material. That entire uh, ecosystem of CVE, they have this idea that they can just do counter propaganda, essentially, they can do counter messaging, and that they can inoculate people to ideas, and they can counter message ideas. And that'll bring everybody back to a center. But I've honestly got this theory, if you scrape away all the ideology off of these radicals, if you were to somehow put them in an information, a sterile information sphere, and they did not have access to these ideas, I think they'd radicalize anyway. And I think they'd find other ways to outlet their anger. I mean, I see that a lot with, um, To me, a lot of the riots that we saw during the BLM protests, people like to blame that on BLM. But a lot of the people that were burning stuff down were non-ideological. They didn't have a radical ideology. They had a lot of grievances and a lot of anger. And you saw how that just, it came out anyway. I think people will generate their own ideologies. They'll generate their own narratives if they're basically being oppressed. So I I don't think think that it's going to work, just the pure counter-messaging.
0: It's well yes so the prop the problem with counter messaging on its own is that you're trying to hold together an increasingly unstable social formation in that the requisite base the requisite base of society of just having access to the necessities of like food clothing and shelter employment whatever um, that shit is literally falling apart in that we have record numbers of homeless encampments life expectancy is dropping like shit is getting really bad uh, in this era of capitalism so, let me thread together a few things here, because I don't want to, I don't want to lose any of the, people are not often motivated by ideology. Um, I don't think that people are especially ideological now, most people. That being said, there is a very broad, uh, there's a general description that fits the young men who are radicalized into ISIS, Islamic extremism, uh, what have you? These are men who are falling from what was previously the middle class, who are being precariatized in Marxist terms, proletarianized, and they do not do jobs in which they can organize as workers. So, to maintain their status in that society, they form essentially these like gangs, these squads that enforce the traditional older social values onto the rest of the population, which maintains their class position. So. If you bring that lens to American extremism, and I know that you and I in the last few years have definitely been looking at the same diagrams, the same counterterrorism documents, which is where this funnel analogy often comes from. It's funny too, because the liberals really don't like when you talk about... The disproportionate amount of young Muslim men who slide into violent extremist groups, they're very uncomfortable about that. But literally, the counterterrorism documents for combating white nationalism are based on the studies of people who join ISIS. So the consistent position here is to say that ethno-nationalism is white people ISIS. And it's not about the total number who go out and do violent attacks. It's about the disproportionate number that come from this group. Neither of us wants to embolden violent extremists at any end of the spectrum. And I know that you've been in some of the same online places that I have and seen these things in terrifyingly vivid light, really knowing what it's like. That being said, we're not a uh, stupid radical centrists where we think everybody's going to get along or, or whatever, but there's some level of civil engagement of discourse that needs to happen or the unsustainable crisis in the center is going to continue to shed towards the violent extremist fringe, no matter what we do about it. I think you can find these kernels of truth at either side that will reveal something that is maybe not discussed through the media. I think a lot of that has to do with relatively humble, moderate solutions of rebuilding a labor movement, um, creating societies where people are materially secure my parents got the best slice of the American economy uh, and basically no one else after them ever did.
1: I was uh, I was graduating high school two year a couple years after 2008. So, yeah. OK,
0: I was in the middle of my. Yeah. So I would have been a sophomore in college. The way yeah. I
1: like to say it is, my generation was the last generation that was promised a nice future. Hmm. And we believed it. The Zoomers don't believe it. They're just, like, they don't. they're just like, no, it's crazy. The anyway, Millennials continue. believed it. The millennials, yeah, we, we, we really we did. we fell yeah. for it. We were like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Not I 11. Mean? <laughs> I'm in third grade. I'm like, wait, what, what does this mean? And I'm like, oh,
0: no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, um. there's a big, there's a big turn of like America's role as a superpower in the world also. And maybe broader questions about whether it is possible to turn back to capitalism that was like, had healthy growth rates and and all this stuff. But the fear through this process of the unsustainable center is that it's going to shed towards radical balkanized groups that uh, become increasingly violent and extreme. And then you have a uh, disintegration of the country and politics as a whole. Okay, so part of what I would like to see is creating some type of discourse between these sides that can restore can restore the prosperity and the conditions of a few decades previous to to reverse the tide of neoliberalism. I have my own ideas politically about what that's going to mean, about a broad coalition. But how do we prevent the direction that social media is currently trending in, where the radical fringes are being pruned in ways that are limiting the, the discourse? Like, are, are we just going to be in a world where there's like, 20 right-wing channels on Odyssey and then there's 20 left-wing channels on Means TV and there's no crossover between those spaces. They literally don't know each other exist.
1: Well, I mean, there's a couple things there. So like, uh, I'll start with the last thing first. There's going to have to be some crossover because there's there's a game being played. You know, I like to think of this in like terms of game theory. Those groups, they need to fight somebody. They need to have some interaction. And so I think there's always going to be that they're they're always then that's kind of even worse because now they're only in connection to each other in opposition to each other, right? Which only hardens them into their positions. So sure. There's always going to be some debate culture, I think. But you're right about the social media companies. You know, I see these tech companies as like that's like the ultimate. That's the that's the seat of power. That's the real enemy. Yeah. Well, yeah. because what it what it is is we're moving into a stage of capitalism or society where. Everything is now about data and information. I mean, it always has been. But now like the data and information is so quantifiable and it's so controllable. And to to get like really memey with it, it's just like in you know, at the end of Metal Gear Solid when they talk about controlling context, right? Like it literally is that situation. And the way I see it is even even a lot of the elites that are currently in power are gonna be struggling with this, where these tech companies are gonna come in and because they control the discourse, they control the means of, of discourse and communication and or social organization. And they also control the signs and the symbols. Because look at something like Disney, for example. They have everything trademarked. You know, th- those, those types of laws are going to accelerate. I mean, in China, they just straight up censor the web. They completely control the signs and the symbols. That creates like a matrix-like propaganda machine where they direct all the different classes of society in this sort of like – Gamified way, right? So that's that's where all the power is heading, and yeah, they're going to they're going to try to limit as much discourse as they can, and they and they will be able to. You know, the internet is already becoming like highly corporatized, highly commercialized. Uh, you Google something, you only get so many different results from it.
0: Do you think that YouTube, social media, search engines—they've changed in the last few years? Do you notice a change in, let's say, like the last five years?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I notice um, when you search something, all the mainstream articles come up first and it's not even a function if someone goes through and manually does that. I mean, those are the things that are getting all the clicks and the views. And, and as more mainstream audience comes in, that's going to only accelerate, right? Because those are the most, those are the articles that are the most readable. There
0: are also, there, there are specific data voids that were exploited by mm-hmm. groups like Jared Taylor, American Renaissance, um, that they optimized for keywords that people yep. would mimetically plant and discover later on. Uh, and that has been manually adjusted, right? Yeah, so, so-, so the ability to plant a meme has been significantly reduced from five years ago.
1: Yeah. So they're going to, they're going to limit people's ability to run ads. They're going to limit like what keywords you can use. That's something I'm noticing a lot lately is just how good the algorithms are picking up on keywords and then censoring you. Like, especially on YouTube. um, A lot of people have gotten their channels flagged for just talking about vaccines in general. They've gotten their channels knocked off. That's because that algorithm's listening 24 seven. And I just expect that to, to accelerate.
0: As a contrarian, as a counterpoint to this, um, I don't know how seriously this was intended, but I had an artist say to me that, um, at least in China, where you have state-controlled media, you know that everything is false, whereas in the American version, you have to choose from 20 different channels and synthesize the truth by uh, digesting all of them. So maybe it's preferable as we move into this dystopian future to just know that everything in the media is a total fabrication and reality is something separate. Maybe (laughs) maybe more of a thought exercise than a practical. I I would love for
1: that situation, because you're right. I know exactly what you mean. Um, but in 2011, you know, 2008 to 2011, when you would get on the internet, you would see dissonant stuff everywhere, right? The first thing you type in, you'd see you would see dissonant actors posting those things, you know, it was not hard to You go on YouTube, it was not hard to find dissonant messages to things. But nowadays you either get a mainstream message or you get this sort of recuperated left, you know, like, you know, I think, I think a lot of the bread tubers fall into this where it's like a radical aesthetic, but it really is just a repackaging of the same old neoliberalism. This. Okay.
0: Yes. So this is, this is the, the issue. This is the, um, the fork that we're at now in inheriting a lot of bad left-wing ideas I was very hopeful for BreadTube. We streamed 70 hours. We looked at every single fucking channel on BreadTube. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did the full survey. There were a few gems in there for sure. But what seems to have happened is that as the right-wingers were pushed off of the platforms... It eliminated the idea or it eliminated the potentials for these ideas to be interrogated from the other side. And so BreadTube erected all of its own dogmas of basically reinventing like radlib politics. So it's very easy to quote, quote, unquote de-radicalize somebody from watching right wing YouTube videos. And then they're culturally progressive and they don't hate trans people anymore. But that doesn't necessarily equip them with the tools to know where surplus value is being extracted in their workplace. It doesn't, it doesn't put them on a pathway towards, well, maybe the issue is that labor organization has been essentially eliminated from American life what was rolled back in the tide of neoliberalism is the reason why you're immiserated right now. Breadtube is not interested to do that. Breadtube Mm -hmm. is interested to make you not racist and not transphobic, which is, is great, but uh, it is fundamentally incapable of resolving the contradictions that are at the center, which is the rampant privatization of all that exists. Maybe, maybe just breadtube is a dead, uh, the potentials are dead. Um, I'm kind of a little bit annoyed with a lot of those things uh, uh, now, but I had hypothesized in an article for the Guardian a year, two years ago now, that the solution to this was building out a left-wing funnel, a pipeline mm-hmm. towards left politics. These um I'm sorry to use him as an example, but he just annoys me to no end. Uh, Thought ThoughtSlime does this like debunk of Nick Fuentes and he botches it horribly. He embarrasses himself in the in the process of like calling this guy like an evil, you know, very moralizing critique. And then because Fuentes is not on the platform, he can't really make a rebuttal, but he he makes a rebuttal and uploads it to BitChute or whatever the platform he's on now. And he fucking just mops the floor with this yeah. guy. And so people who were, as in your experience, consuming ThoughtSlime's content and consuming Nick Fuentes, when they see his response, they will never go back to ThoughtSlime. Oh. So that, that contested space is actually really important. And you actually do have to bring people to your side by convincing them the possibility for that is what's being squeezed out in the neoliberal capture and ramping down of dissident political speech on the platforms.
1: Yeah, I mean, like two years ago, I was basically advocating that BreadTube should, either through debate or response videos, algorithmically... Conjoin themselves with the far right in this abomination of, of, of online <laughs> and politics. And now we have Bosch. Thank you. <laughs> oh. That's not the abomination I wanted, okay?
0: <laughs> That's not the abomination he is, I was talking he's about. He's writing both of those recommendation algorithms, though. That's what he's oh. like. I mean, the growth of that channel is there's, nothing, there's never been anything like it.
1: There hasn't, but you're going to. You, you, you're getting the worst possible politics you could like. and
0: that's the dissolving back into the radlib, like anarcho-vitanism
1: exactly. shit Of like yeah yeah it, it, exactly and you know what i'm kind of like waiting to see is when actual radical leftists come onto the scene are they going to get deplatformed in the same way and, and my my intuition is that they will and that's going to be interesting to watch.
0: Well, what what radical left is the, is the other question. Because there's, um, so I mean, I, I've been following these things, trying to report on it as it happens. There's a few, uh, there were some groups in the UK that were taken off of Facebook. There were various anarchist groups, uh, one of them in, in Brooklyn, uh, not far from me, that was uh, taken off. But I got to say that there are real rifts and fractures in left-wing thinking. And um, some of these anarchist ideas are just, Fundamentally not scalable. They yeah. are localist in their ambitions, um, and I'm all about having horizontality between you and your dozen friends at the potluck. But that's not going to restore the the society before neoliberalism, which seems to be the cause of what is shedding people to these far right reactionary ideas. So, yeah, we can all say that like these right wing politics are terrible and we should uh, combat them, but. Um, offering a solution and like bringing people to something specific. It can't be like these Antifa. I forget the name of the group in the Pacific Northwest, but um, the day of the inauguration, walking around with a sign that says, we don't want Biden. We want revenge. And it's a picture of an AK 47. Like those are literally... The worst optics like you're working for andy no that's the person who's going to capture the value of your activism it's counter messaging to the other side that these people like yeah. just really want to destroy society so there's a habit for people to like some right winger will post the left just wants to destroy civilization and um be gay and the first comment is like yes this but unironically it's like don't destroy civilization don't allow the satirical exaggeration of your beliefs to become your unironic beliefs this is not a consumer identity we need housing and healthcare and and whatever oh can you talk about um the job can you talk about peril
1: um so i'm not actually working at peril anymore
0: no okay
1: so i I was working at peril and it was it was one of these cve organizations sure uh, they don't call themselves that but uh that is that essentially is working to do inoculation and counter-messaging yeah and I guess again, my frustration with some of these things isn't so much inoculation or counter messaging, but it's what is the th- there has to be a thing that people are being brought to. Right, right. They people on the internet are not gonna be expect you know, maybe some like alt lighters, maybe some like boomer conservative, you know, types, maybe, may- maybe those kids can be brought back to some Biden centrist position. But
0: it's the it's the funding structure of like there's there's no reason why billionaire philanthropists are going to fund the revitalization of a left-wing labor movement in the US. Like no they are very interested in de-radicalizing, but they fundamentally cannot solve the, the problem. And
1: even the de-radicalization, they're not even the, – the, the money isn't exactly like wholesale there to just be thrown around for de-radicalization either. Mm-hmm. What I see – you know, happening, especially coming out from the Biden administration is a securitization of the problem. Basically, uh, how sure, do we, sure. how do we track these people, monitor these people yeah, and put them yeah. in jail? Mm-hmm. And but going back to the counter messaging, anybody that's listening to Nick Fuentes, anybody that's listening to say people in further than that, Eric Stryker, Keith Woods, all of these, you know, explicitly fascists. And when I say fascist, I don't mean it in the The way that people like to throw that word out, you know, a way to slander their enemies. I mean revolutionary right wingers. They're not going to be drawn back over to Vosh or to Biden or any of those positions because they're revolutionaries now. They see through the problems, they see through the problems of capitalism. And they have, and when it comes to the problems of capitalism, the people that are listening to say Keith Woods, they have a pretty good analysis on it. The problem with their analysis is they are not dialectical. They fall into conspiracy theory thinking. They fall into well, it's the Jews that are re- rounding all this up. But they are not going to be lulled back into some de-radicalized position. They need an equally revolutionary position to be drawn into. And I mm-hmm. think you're right that mm-hmm. that goes back oh, to it goes back to it goes back to the labor movements. It goes back to you know. I do, I do have to
0: say though that I think. Um, Revolution, the historical record for revolution is um, mixed, to say the least, right, right? So uh, I'm very much in favor of reform. The problem with limiting the parameters for political speech is that you remove the possibilities for reform and then you make revolution the only option. but that's a that's a very dicey scenario. Um, do you see the internet and social media in the last few years drifting more to the right, more to the left? What have you observed in this space?
1: I don't know. That's hard to. It's hard to answer. I mean, for a lot that were on the right, they've drifted further right. I think you know the America First, um, Nick Fuentes stuff. That really had a huge. That had a huge impact. It had a huge wave. I'd probably argue bigger than the alt right did. Indeed. On the left, you. I don't know. I guess you kind of just see the people in their camps have been increasingly drifting further, further to those two sides. I don't know if I could say that everybody's. But now what I'm seeing is like this split. What I'm really noticing now is like this split on the left with the anarchists and the revolutionaries and especially with the MLs all the way over here. They're put there there's like a, a push pull effect happening where a lot of those people that first got drawn into the radical aesthetics, you know, the radlib aesthetics of like contrapoints or Vosh, they're all like moving right. You know, they're all moving hmm. towards no capitalism's not so bad. Like you Hmm. guys don't know what you're talking about. I guess like I see some people getting more urgent to the problem and becoming more radicalized. And then I see other people kind of going back to that center, almost Biden position. And it's happening mostly because of the, what they see as the absurdities of the radicals. Right. Hmm. And again, they're being pushed mainly by, you know, tankies and anarchists. So. I don't know. I, I it's it's very hard to say like on scale what's happening, but I see like within these little micro communities people polarizing more and more and on the left it's splitting and it seems it seems to me like the center center constituency might be growing a bit faster than the than the left constituency, the hmm. radical left constituency.
0: There's definitely um there's a sense of like the possibilities have been evacuated because we're now in this moment of like the return to the center, you know, Obama is back his Biden is in power and, and whatever. But, um, in terms of developments on the left, the post left stuff is interesting. Um, I think people are very right in their criticisms about the current instantiation of left-wing politics, the DSA being more concerned with uh, superficial Twitter politics than uh, moving materials in the real world. All of those concerns are valid. Um, It's not actually an excuse to not address the material stuff in the world. Um, I think this is a healthy period of development where if there's a little bit of factional infighting, maybe we can remove some of the not so useful elements of it and reach a a more coherent synthesis. Um, I see the inklings of that now. I'm forever the optimist. So uh, I could be wrong on this front. But I think maybe that brings us back to where you and I are each at as people who came from other walks of life, but are now content producers. How do you imagine yourself and your own work interfacing with these problems? What is it that you're you're trying to put out, you had mentioned when we spoke earlier that you were going to start a new podcast. You're moving from video to audio.
1: We'll have a video. Uh, uh, it'll be a video too. Mm-hmm. B- basically, what I've seen the problem as, and and this is the sense that I got after, you know, diving into the post-structuralist work, people like Baudrillard and DeBoer and all that. I've real, you know, for a while I thought, well, you just bring everybody to this bread to the left position, then we're fine. But then, you know, you go through the layers of the matrix, you come out of the inception dream states and you realize, Oh crap. It's another trap. It's another trick. Like that. This capitalist AI fucking monstrosity, which is stre- strewn its tentacles all through society has thoroughly just recuperated and, co- and co-opted so much that it's, you, you might think that you're in a radical position when you're not. And so, I think where I'm at now is, well, why is that? Well, it's because people are caught up in this very hyper-real, just dream state where they're not interfacing with reality, right? They're not interfacing with material reality. They're really much caught up in culture wars. They're caught up in their, their ideologies and whatever aesthetic form that takes. And they're not dealing with base reality. So, and why is that? Well, what I've learned is the only way that I was able to get outside of it and sort of see the forest through the trees was by consuming all the different perspectives. You know, I've basically consumed every perspective on the political spectrum. I can tell you generally what the tankies think. I can tell you how the post leftists feel. I can tell you how the anarchists feel. I can tell you how the bread tube Voschites feel, how the centrists feel, the, Conservatives, the libertarians, the paleocons, the America Firsters, the fascists—I listen to all of them. And you're right that there's little these little droppings of truth everywhere. I honestly, I'm to the point now where I don't encourage the, the, the platforming. I understand with some of these like Stryker in them, they're dangerous. You know, those guys, I probably would kick them out of the room because mm-hmm. they're not there to talk. They're pure propagandists. But there you're absolutely right there needs to be not just a dialogue but people need to understand these ideas i almost encourage people and they're like well how do you get people out of radicalization show them everything show them everything and take it take them through it and help them decontextualize everything and and sort of see the function of things rather than this grand spectacle of aesthetic form get them to see just what is this narrative, right? Get them to unwind all these different narratives, and in that you're going to see the contradictions. You're going to see the different grievances that all the different groups have, and then we're going to be able to maybe get out of this postmodern, post-truth problem that we have and get back to more of a consensus. Because you're right; if we don't have that consensus, it's it's going to be war in this country.
0: It's legitimacy, yeah. The legitimacy of the state of
1: the nation is is falling apart. Yes, yeah, and and this is and this happened in. in you know, people talk about Weimar Germany. There's a much more Prussian example. It's Yugoslavia. And in Yugoslavia, they saw this. They saw a cultural polarization. They saw a political polarization. They saw a breakdown in reality, even on the way that people would use words, you know. And you already see that now. And, and that ended, you know, it ended in ethnic conflict. The ethnic conflict wasn't the motivator. The race war won't be the motivator, but that will be the end result. It will be a culture war. It'll be a race war. It will not end well and you know I honestly think the far right will win that battle at least in the interim Hmm. and Hmm. what I'm seeing now I guess if there was any concerning trend that I see it's not like some burgeoning ethno-nationalist movement it's this sort of like mixed ideological populist movement that one maybe would get excited for in a different situation but in this situation the people that are kind of like running the narrative show are people like Tucker, you know, Tucker Carlson is the one kind of propelling this anti-establishment narrative. And you see it, you can see it on, you can see signs of it on Twitter, you know, where you have Glenn Greenwald and Amy Therese and all these different left wing figures, which actually I would argue a lot of times have a better analysis structurally of what's going on. Having this like horseshoe, alliance with people on the far right.
0: That's the, that's the danger that that's the danger. If Tucker gets closer to the correct analysis, then what appears to be the left wing alternative, that's a loss. That's a uh-huh. loss every time. Um, and that's why, that's why right wing populism is such a, a real, um, a real threat is because it gets close to the truth, but it can't actually bring it the whole way home. And it's fundamentally confused about how to fix its own grievances Um, those are things that can only be rectified by the left, but unless there's a left, they don't get fixed. I love this idea that the way that you de-radicalize people is you show them everything. That's, uh, (laughs) that's powerful. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. We're just about at the hour now. So I think, um, I'd love to talk if you have a little bit of time after the record, but, um, oh, well, let me, okay. I'm going to ask you one more question and then, then I'll give us an out and you can totally pass on this if you don't want to answer it. Do you have a political label that you like to use now?
1: Um, See, I can't use this label because it's been co-opted by this crowd, but I would put myself in some sort of post-left camp in in the sense that I'm critical of the current left movement. I think it needs to expand itself more. They ruined Um, it for all of us. But but, it was I, know, such a but good I don't term. want to be. I don't want people to think I'm like a an Amy Therese stan, like or. or well, or, before
0: that, it mentioned narco primitivism. So
1: it's well, it's drifting. I have some. I have some, uh, I have some sympathies towards primitivism. I have myself. noticed from some of your posts. Yeah, I'm very folk I'm very, punk. Well, and, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm probably some sort of neo luddite. I'm very uh, uh, sour. I read too much land and so I'm sour on technology now. I
0: see, I see. Well, I will, uh, hopefully I can convince you to come to the other side of being pro-tech, but also on the left. That's, uh, yeah. I'm shilling, I'm shilling very hard, but uh, <laughs> people seem receptive to it. Okay, so yeah, post, I mean, uh, look, if you don't have criticisms of left-wing politics right now, uh, you're not paying attention. So that that makes total sense to me. Any last things you want to say? Is there any projects you want to plug? How can people get in touch with you, find out more about your work?
1: I, I run my YouTube channel, Faraday Speaks. I'll be starting my uh, weekly stream on there called Dislimited Hangout. I kind of want to get a lot of these different perspectives that people don't see. I'll probably get canceled at some point for bringing some guests on, but I really do think that people need to interrogate these things head on. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't think I have too much to say other than that, but people can reach me on Twitter at Faraday Speaks, and I'm, I'm pretty open to talking to people.
0: Caleb, thank you so much. It's great to finally chat and hopefully uh, much more again in the future. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks.